episode 20 of Tea or Books, which is actually just past our first anniversary. Happy birthday, us. Happy birthday, us. I am Rachel. I'm Simon. And welcome to this very special anniversary edition, which isn't special at all because we only just realised that it was our anniversary (laughs) in true Tea or Books style. Um, So today we're going to be discussing first person versus third person narrators. And then in the second part, we're going to be pitting two classic and much loved um, autobiographies of childhoods, Cider with Rosie by Laura Lee, Laurie Lee and My Family and Other Animals by Gerald Durrell. So, Simon, how are you? What are you reading? What's going on? I'm really good. It feels like ages since we recorded together. Well, because think... we, we prepped <laughs> early for the last one, didn't we? We did. Um, and yes, if, I, if I'd known that it was one year, we could have done some sort of special birthday theme, but we haven't. Um, <laughs> <No>. so, <laughs> so yeah, I'm very good, thank you. I just had a lovely week in Edinburgh, where almost everyone I met told me that um, if I'd come a week earlier, it would have been lovely weather. <laughs> so, People say that. Yeah. But um, I was more than happy just to go to bookshops and then read books. So what did I read? Um, well, what I'm reading now, which is not what I was reading then, is uh, Vanessa and Her Sister by Priya Palmer. Oh. Um, which marks the fourth novelization of Ginny Wolf's life that I've read. Which <laughs> <laughs> shows that I have a problem. Um, <laughs> so, as the title suggests, it's mostly about Vanessa Bell, her, um, her sister. Um, and it seems to be mostly about their early life. Well, not early life, but so, um, Virginia Woolf hasn't published a novel yet and I'm most of the way through it. So, in fact, she's not Virginia Woolf yet. She's still Virginia Stevens. So, um, it seems to be mostly about Virgin- Vanessa Bell's, um, I don't know if you can hear the screaming coming from my window. People seem to be being massacred in the street, but I'm sure they're fine. Um, so yes, Vanessa Bell's and her husband and their sort of fraught marital relations. It's very good. I'm enjoying it, but it's kind of annoying in that it's quite, it's mostly sort of a diary form for Vanessa Bell. But there's lots of letters by other people like Lytton Strachey and Roger Fry and Virginia Woolf and all these people whose letters we actually have, so I don't know if there's actually any need for Priya Palmer to make up their letters, because <laughs> nothing in it is actually um, actual text that they wrote. But never yeah. mind. <laughs> so uh, is, it, is it accurate as far as you know? Well, I think so. I need to go and do some more research, because there's there a bit just now where Lytton Strachey proposed to Virginia Woolf and she accepted him, <laughs> um, and that lasted sort of a day, and I don't know if that actually happened or not. Do, do I, like, I, I think it did. I think I remember reading about that. I've read three biographies of Virginia Woolf, so I really must learn to remember more that I read in them. <laughs> well, there's so much with biographies, that's the thing. You feel like an expert when you finish, and then a week later you're like, so I gone. know nothing. All gone. gone. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, in Edinburgh I bought lots of books. I went to nine bookshops whilst I was oh. there, <laughs> um, including my favourite one was Armchair Books, which oh. um, was quite small and very highly stacked in that the, so the, the shelves went up right to the ceiling and you had to borrow a stepladder if you wanted to get things off the top shelves <laughs> did it have an armchair weirdly no <laughs> i didn't that's a good point did not think about that <laughs> um completely misnamed <laughs> had lots of little step stools that were so small that they didn't really help and they had all the paperback fiction on the lower shelves and all the hardback fiction on the upper shelves. And obviously the hardback fiction is where the older fiction also is. Yeah. But, and I could see on a tall shelf Rose McCauley's name and could not see what was there. And thought, okay, I'm going to have to get a set ladder in order to find out. And came away with Orphan Island by Rose McCauley, amongst um, various other things. 
which I was excited about finding. Simon, is there anything in particular that's special that you can tell us about? Well, oh, well so, so I think I talked on here before about loving Patricia Brent Spinster by Herbert Jenkins, and I did manage to get a book called The Rain Girl by him, which is a terrible title and it's got a terrible cover, but hopefully it's quite fun. <laughs> um, I bought a Storm Jameson. Have you read anything by her? Um, I know I've owned books by her that I've never read and then ended up giving away. <laughs> yes, I've also got a few books by her, but this one um, is called, let me see, A Cup of Tea with Mr. Thorgill. That sounds like a nice book. It sounds, yes, it's got a lovely cover, and I thought even if I don't read it, it's very pretty. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've, in fact, I saw Karen from Cornflower Books while I was there and mentioned I bought this, and she thought, said, oh yes, that was it. She's an odd author, so we'll see how that goes. But it's yeah. lovely to see Karen. And speaking, sorry, I'm monopolising this, and I won't for long. But speaking of lovely bloggers, I have just come from having a cup of tea and piece of cake with um, Samantha from A Musical Feast and her husband, oh, who are yeah. visiting Oxford from the US, which is very nice. Oh, nice. And she said that you and I are the two people she goes to most for recommendations. So there you go. Well, I'm touched. That's very nice. <laughs> Thank you, Samantha. Um, how are you, and what are you reading? I'm good, thank you. Um, have I did I had I been to Rome from last time we'd done our podcast? No, I think that's why I recorded early actually because you were off oh, to yeah, Rome. Yeah, so I went to Rome, which was lovely and probably far sunnier than Edinburgh. <laughs> probably. Um, yeah, I mean, I have to say definitely that we did have some rain. If that makes you feel. Oh, better. that does actually help me. Yes, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and Spanish steps were closed for refurbishment, which was obviously devastating. <laughs> the Spanish um, steps. Mm, the famous steps. I was like, what is this? And they'd closed the day before we arrived. Oh. Like, what are the chances? But um, no, it, was, it blew my mind, Rome. Absolutely wonderful. And I can't wait to go back. And now I feel like I need to read more books set in Rome. Because <laughs> I, I, now I know what it looks like. I can imagine myself there. And there's actually a favourite book of mine that I read a couple of years ago that's set in Rome. And I'm going to reread it. And it's very good. And I think you might have read it. It's Ooh, a favourite a Favourite of the Gods by Sybil Bedford. Yes, I have read that. I'd forgotten it was set in Rome, but I have read it. <laughs> it's wonderful. I mean, partly set in Rome, not the whole thing. Yes, I remembered it was in Italy, but I couldn't remember. Yeah. Um, I know so... three things about Rome. Oh. I can tell you that it was not built in a day, <laughs> that all roads lead there, and that when in Rome, you should do as the Romans do. <laughs> Simon, you're wonderful. At <laughs> such a sage. <laughs> <laughs> I hope all three of those bits of information came in handy. <laughs> Oh dear. Um, so did did you do any reading whilst you were there? Well, I'm currently in a three-way book sharing thing with my mum and my sister because I bought my mum for her birthday in January. My mum takes a while to get to books. Um, the first in Elizabeth Jane Howard's Cazalet series, hmm. um, which my mum and I watched many years ago when I was still a teenager living at home on in a BBC series where... One of the main characters was played by Lord Grantham before he became really famous. <laughs> and I said, and so I saw this on Amazon and I thought, oh, my mum might want to read this. It's a series of five books. It's about a family in the 1930s and 40s. I mean, what more could could you want from a book, in my opinion? Yeah. Um, and my mum was had no memory of watching the TV series with me and still doesn't. <laughs> read three of the books now. Um, so anyway, she started reading the book and then she phoned me up and was like, this book is amazing. I've literally read it in two days and my mum doesn't read very quickly. So, um, that's a good sign. So I was like, okay, I'm yeah. going to have to borrow this book. So the first one is called, um, The Light Years. Hmm. 
And honestly, it's the best book I've read in years. I, wow. um, I read it on the plane to Rome, could not stop reading. Just nothing really happens. It's just all the characters are so alive and real and wonderful and you just kind of fall in love with them all and it's amazing. It's this family and it's all like there's three brothers and a sister and their parents and all their wives and children and husbands and so forth. Um, and it's just fantastic. And now I've just got the second book off my mum, which is called Marking Time. And my sister is badgering me to hurry up and <laughs> she wants it. So I've got to hurry up and read it by the weekend. And I don't think it'll be very hard because it's honestly, it's one of the best series I've ever, I've ever read. And I think you'd really love it, Simon. Oh, yeah. Oh, gosh, it's a good start. So for some reason, every time I think about it, I think, oh, it's set in Tudor times. And then every time I learn that it is not, and every time I forget that it is not, because <laughs> I, I don't want to read a book set in Tudor times particularly, but a book set between the World Wars, not my yeah. least favourite period of history. So, <laughs> um, no, you'd love it. And also, it's in the countryside. What more? This is like, basically, it's a who's who of, you know, topics we've previously covered on to your books. Yeah. She's written me over a book. In fact, Lorna, <laughs> who who listens um, to the podcast, I think is a, well, she is an Elizabeth Jane Howard fan. I don't know if she's read those ones or not. So maybe she can let me. <laughs> I mean, honestly, you'd love it. Uh, speaking of authors I've meant to read for a long time and have not, I read my first G.K. Testerton while I was in Edinburgh. Really? No, that's not true. That's a lie. I read my first Contra McKenzie while I was in Edinburgh. <laughs> so I just went for, you know. I don't know what they've got in common. But so, yes, Compton Mackenzie, uh, Poor Relations was the book. Um, have you read anything about him? No, I always see him in second-hand bookshops, but I don't really know much about him. I saw so many of his books since I started reading it. I must have just glossed over them before. And this is just like an old Hutchinson paperback I bought once, um, and I took it with me because it was light. But really funny, very witty, was not expecting that. Yeah. Um, Poor Relations is about this um, famous popular playwright who um who has extended family of brothers and their wives and nieces and nephews and whatnot who are all basically just living off him and all fairly disdainful of him and he's fairly disdainful of them and it's quite episodic it's not there's not much of a plot going through the whole thing but um except sort of attacked on romance plot that uh but it's just the way he writes is very witty reminding me a bit of saki yeah sounds perfect for me yeah yeah and it was in, actually, I can't, I can't even remember if it's in the first or third person, but just imagine that I have remembered <laughs> <laughs> taking us neatly to our first topic of the day. <laughs> ah. um, first person versus third person, which is something I jotted down when I first thought oh, we should do a, a either or podcast and somehow have not done yet. But um, I think it's one of those things where I often just don't remember whether something is in the first or third person. Does it tend to stick in your mind or not? No, I feel like the tense tends to bother me more than the person. Mm. Um, but having kind of dabbled in writing, I do find the the first person um, much more difficult to write in. So I don't know whether I, um, I'm, I kind of what I like about third person is that you kind of get into everybody's heads. And with the first person, you only really get one person's perspective, which is great mm -hmm. if, you're if you're reading a bit like Emma, where you're supposed to be drawn into their perspective, not see all the things that they're blind to, and then you get to the end and like, oh, how can I have been so stupid? Um, that's great. The unreliable narrator is fantastic. Um, but I, I think I don't tend to choose books based on a narrator, but I think I just generally tend to prefer third-person books or come across third-person books more often. Yeah, I think it's um, 
I don't know. I, I, I'll end over to look at poor relations since Coverley isn't a third person. I think perhaps books, the, the default perhaps, particularly for older books, was third person. And perhaps if you can't remember whether it was third person or first person, it's probably third person. Yeah. Um, I mean, we're just blithely assuming that everyone knows the difference between first and third person, but I'm assuming people do. <laughs> so first person, if it's, you're writing an I, third person, if it's he or she. Sorry if that's not obvious to everyone. <laughs> we'll just cover that quickly. Um, so I did want to ask, because I know that you, do some writing um and i dabble occasionally as well do you do you tend to write in third person if you do if you are writing um well i say this but then i just remembered that what i'm writing is actually in first person <laughs> i don't even know what i'm doing anymore um yeah i and that's the thing i have found it really difficult and on reflection i thought maybe i should have done i next time i want to write a book i will do it in the third person because it is really difficult when you want to talk about other people and you want to get other people's perceptions and thoughts and things in. You can't because you're only telling the story through one person's perspective. I mean, obviously, you can say what that person thinks about those other people and what they think they might be thinking, but you can't get that overview unless you, you know, do one chapter in one person's perspective and another chapter in another person's perspective, which is quite a, you know, current like a prize winning trendy thing <laughs> it's yeah. quite a vogue isn't it and often they yeah. do mix and match first and third person in different sections yeah which um off, i mean it obviously can be successful in fact i think does it happen in speaking of love by angela young certainly different perspectives i can't remember if any of them are third person but um i don't know i often just find it seems to be the default now again is to do various different perspectives which i don't know how sometimes it doesn't feel like it always adds to the book no, I don't, and I think it's a bit, a bit gimmicky, really. Yeah, um, I think I've also been tarnished, or had that tarnished for me by Rebecca's Tale by Sally Bowman, which I have slagged off in a previous podcast, <laughs> so I shan't do it again. Um, but it's, in the times that I have done writing myself, I found it's a huge difference writing third or first person. Whereas as a reader, I perhaps don't feel quite so. The one I, the novel I'm trying to write myself is in first person. I decided that. It was easier to focus it that way somehow. Yeah. Um, and it, and I think we say about unreliable narrators, the, the um, obviously is has to be first person. It is just it adds this whole new um, dimension to it that if in books like um, Wish Her Safe at Home by Stephen Benatar um, and A Kind of Intimacy by Jen Ashworth, the two I was thinking of, where they're unreliable narrators not because they're being deceitful, but because they're mentally. Um, well, in the different books, one of them, yeah, to different extents, they're, they're just not very well. And so they think they're telling the truth, but their version of the truth and how they, and how they see the truth is very distorted. And it's, and it's clever the way that both those authors manage, um, the ways in which the reader is, gradually realizes that, um, particularly in Wish I Safe at Home. Have you, have you read that one? Yes, I have. Yeah. It's wonderful. It's very good. It's very clever, isn't it? Um, when she finds that, Paint is it Rachel is her name? When yeah. she finds um the the painting that she um thinks is the architect and slowly realise that in fact it's just any old painting she just picked up in a junk shop. That sort of thing. I like yeah. the opportunities the first person can give for that, for like both both um perspectives. But um in some ways any first person narrator is going to be less reliable than a third person narrator. In the, yeah, I mean yeah. by definition and I think you can you can have a really, uh, what's the strength of first person novels is you, you often have a very memorable, very lively narrative voice that, that draws you in and it's much more about character 
than about plot i think first person because mm. you have to like you have, well you are you don't have to like the narrator but you have to be um enthralled by their voice and convinced by their voice and that's very difficult as well to write actually um you know third person is i think easier in the sense that you don't you can have a kind of neutral voice and then go and zip inside everybody's heads. But with the first person, you have to maintain that reality of that other person's voice the whole way through, which can, which is really hard. Yeah. Do you, do you have any favourite like first person narrators? Yeah, I was just thinking about um, some of my favourite books. And I think something that really always makes me think, wow, that's amazing, is when an author writes in a voice that's completely different to them. Um, and to their experience, and yet they managed to make it seem really real. So, for example, The Catcher in the Rye, Holden, is just like a teenage boy. Mm. Um, and obviously Jodie Salinger wasn't a teenager when he wrote it, so the fact that it, it feels so perfectly just exactly what a teenage boy would think and say is wonderful. Well, from my perspective of what a teenage boy would think, <laughs> so I've never been one. But um, And again, Emma, I think, is is wonderful from the perspective. I know it's not a first-person narration, but you do kind of get that sense of her character. And um, I'm trying to think who else. That is one of those clever sort of... The way that Jameson's, I think, one of the best people at doing a third-person narrator that also lets you into the person's mind. Um, Which is tricky to do, I thought. Yeah, no, I always feel like Emma is first-person, but it's not. Um, It's free and direct discourse, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Very very early example thereof. Yeah, and it's wonderful, and I think it's very hard to do that with um, a novel that's very centred around one person, um, because it is very much her story, but you manage to fold in the other people, and that's the kind of third-person narration that I think is, is the, the most skillful and the most enjoyable. Um, I'm trying to think of, I did just think of some someone else that I really, another first-person narration that I really enjoyed, but I can't remember what it is, so you you take up the back of it while you talk. Well, the free director of course reminded me of something of Virginia Woolf novels in general, but Mrs. Dalloway perhaps in particular, the way that she goes because I think it's all in third person, but yes. you're often let into Mrs. Dalloway's mind, Septimus Harding's mind. Not Septimus Harding, Septimus whatever his uh, name is. Yes, there's no one from Trollope who just pops in for a bit. <laughs> um <laughs> Um and she is just an expert of that, of course, and just dipping in in and out of people's perspectives in in even in the same sentence. Um, in fact, I was reading The Art of the Novel whilst I was in Edinburgh, which is a collection of essays by different people on mostly on how to write novels, although there's one sort of stray essay analysing Bryn and Bart for some reason. But um, <laughs> yeah, the, one of them, I can't remember who, said, you must do first or third, you can't just go in and out of perspectives in, the, in one sentence, it's sloppy writing. And I was thinking, you just taken out most of the great works of the first half of the 20th century with that line but sure okay um one style of first person that i really do love is um the diary or you know a bit yeah often diary so um for example the vanessa and her sister is but also of course diary of a lady by em delafield shelley jackson's life on the savages and raising demons um and you know lots of other examples it's just a great way to um very naturally have someone give the first person because sometimes if you're going to have dialogue in a novel it can feel a bit strange that it's all being reported by the first person or you have to like have that person give their first person narration and give them give their dialogue i don't know it just it 
it works yeah, well. It's a leap of, of like, it's funny how because I that I mean that's how I'm having to do things in the book that I'm writing, uh, and it's funny how you just kind of accept it. You yeah, it's big, true. When you're reading a book and you're like in the back of your head, you're like, "There's no way they would have remembered this," but you just kind of like, "Yeah, fine, this it's happening." Um, I've just thought of something, and I think that this I'm I'm thinking this is generally true. Um, a lot of books for young adults tend to be in first person, and it's mm. that kind of um, I capture the castle books like that, where you have that real teenager, very chatty voice. Mm, that really brings the book to life and gets you inside the head of that person um and i do think it's quite a young adult um and children's book trend as well that you do have this um very strong narrative voice where you're inside that person's head and experiencing it emotively from their perspective i think it's more young adult than children's i know certainly in a lot of the current stuff that's very popular um a lot of the that fiction is first person, and teenagers seem to really like it. That's a really good point, actually. Um, yeah, I guess that is a good way in if it feels like a conversation between the yeah. um, reader and the character. One thing I do like about third person narration a lot, um, which isn't so easy in first, is the way that the author can sort of gently mock the characters or can yeah. be like sardonic about them. I think, again, Saki or you know, Picture of Dorian Gray or Jane Austen or any of these things where. Um, in fact, Bruce McCorry, Beryl Bainbridge, Smiral Spark, millions of people do it, and it's a, the, yeah. that, like, we're seeing the characters at the same time as this level at which the omniscient author is, is undermining them or, or like winking yeah. at the reader. Um, I think Barbara Pym's brilliant at doing that as well. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's the sort of thing where if it was a character doing it, it could, in the first person, it could work, but you, I don't know, you'd, um, maybe you'd feel that they were more unpleasant if they were doing it, or you'd, or it would just, I don't know, stilt the way in which they were seeing the world. Whereas if, if you've got these very earnest characters that are at the same time being mocked in, you know, however, whatever sort of language the narrator wants to use, because obviously the narrator can also talk, can also write however they want to, whereas the first person narrator would have to always be writing in that. Yeah. You know, within the limitations of their, you know, wit and intelligence and all, whatever they've been given as a, as a character. Yeah. No, I think the third person narration is much better for getting a a different a real kind of sense of who everybody is and being able to do those asides and also you tend to get more description more of a sense of place and setting because true, yeah. you know people don't always notice those sorts of things and so you get these lovely passages of description of the countryside or the city or what have you and i think that's the real restriction sometimes of first person narration is you can't re- when you can, but it's like, well, how often would somebody say, and you know, here's my bedroom, and the walls are this color, and this, this, and this. You know, it's yeah. <laughs> it, is a, it is a restriction, and I think it's very it's a fine line to tread between the two of them. Is like, you know, you don't want first person to be all thoughts and emotions. You don't want third person to be all description. You want to be able to get inside somebody's head. Um, and I think that kind of zooming in on people and zooming out again style of third person is is the one that I I really really enjoy, and I love being able to laugh with the with the narrator at people. Yes, and I think there are some some authors. Um, Ivy Conter Burnett was one thing. If you just they just couldn't write in the first person, it would be a completely different sort of novel. Yeah. Where I mean, she's constantly just showing up the characters with this yeah this authorial like I don't know it's a bit like they're you know gods on olympus or something just laughing at the people there 
Um, I'm trying to think if there are, I'm sure there are, but, um, novelists who go back and forth between first and third, um, not, not within the same book, but just do some books first person, some books third person. But I can't think of any right now. No, I can't either. <laughs> I mean, Virginia Woolf didn't do anything in the first person, neither does Barbara Pym, neither Jane Austen never did. No. Um, Except, I guess, the epistolary novels in a way, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, epistolary is kind of a completely different kettle of fish, isn't it, I suppose? Yeah. You are jumping in and out. I mean, Wuthering Heights um, is kind of first person, but very dodgy, like very lengthy reporting of people's (laughs) stories. Yes, that's, yeah, Uh, sort of cheating, trying to get best of both, isn't it, really? (laughs) I remember teaching my class it, and they were like, are they... Is he still like repeating what she said? I was like, look, seriously, just, <laughs> let just, it go, uh, let it wash over you. <laughs> it's going to happen. Um, Jane Eyre's in the first person, which I suppose is quite an early example of that, actually, where you're talking directly to the the reader. Yeah, I guess because all of those early novels were so keen to be like, we found this manuscript and it's all true, sort of thing. Yes. Like, you know, I think that was a, they often tried to merge the two in that way. Um, Hmm. Yeah, I can't I could've... someone who regularly switches between styles. I think a lot of authors seem to overtly prefer one style over another. I think so. And I think the bulk probably are third person as well. Yeah. Um, I, think, I think maybe Richard Crompton goes back and forth between the two. But I have to further study it. If anyone's in there while I was listening to this saying, what about this, this, one, this person, this person, this person, do let us know who we're missing, who does it. Um, I'm trying to think if Margaret Atwood has done it. I feel like I've read one of hers that's in the first person, but I'm not sure. Oh, I can't remember. No. One nice thing about the first person is that it must be in some ways um, easier for plot, or at least more convincing for plot, in that that one person may well not know things that they have to find out later. Whereas if if there's things that have can only be unveiled later in in a third person novel, it might feel a bit artificial that for some reason this wasn't revealed to the reader earlier yeah. um, especially in a detective novel or something if it's if it's in the third person and for some reason just an important you know fact wasn't revealed yes and i do i think um detective novels tend to be in the first person don't they i'm trying to think actually because agatha christie aren't very often in the first person um murder of roger Ackroyd being an exception of course Oh, right, so that's um, what I'm thinking of. Yes, um, but I think generally they're not in... Oh, hmm, is that true? <laughs> not sure. Actually, <laughs> they're certainly not from the perspective of the detectives, but I suppose that's maybe when they're Hastings, maybe even Hastings is there, I think it's often from the perspective of Captain Hastings. So perhaps she does. useful. I think I'd, the ones I've read that have tended to be in the first person have been ones where there's been a need to conceal... Mm-hmm. Through, the, through the narrator and I think that's the thing that makes it easier with the first person is you know it's easy like you say it's easier plot wise and it's easier for you not to mention things and for characters to get away with things um whereas if you're supposed to be omniscient and you deliberately don't say stuff it's just kind of I think it's more obvious it's easy mm-hmm. to, to delude people by having them utterly convinced by the person who they're reading the book that I those eyes um, kind of being just focused on what they're seeing and not really thinking about the other characters. But then I do think there's a risk at the same time 
is not getting enough of other characters. And I do think sometimes in first-person novels with other characters, I'm like, oh, I really want to know more about them. I want to be inside their head. I want to know what they're thinking. Mm-hmm. And especially if I don't like the narrator very much or don't find them massively interesting. Um, I often think, oh, why didn't you write it from their perspective? Or what about um, you know, their perspective? Or why why wasn't it their story? And, and why is it this person's? And so I think... You know, I don't have that much frustration with third-person ones because I feel like I get to know everybody. Yeah, I think it, it is one of those cases where it's really important that the main character not necessarily is sympathetic, but if the author thinks they're sympathetic, that, that, they, that, <laughs> that they do come across as that if it's first-person. I think um, Impassioned Clay, I think, was the name of the novel by Stevie something, but I think that was in the first person, and the main character was so objectionable that I just thought, and was obviously not supposed to be. He was obviously supposed to be this empathetic character. That I just couldn't cope with that. Whereas, yeah, if they were in the third person, I think third person, you know, you can take your pick of which characters you empathise with. It doesn't matter yeah. as much. And you feel a bit more removed from things, don't you? Yeah, um, I guess you could also you can still find the narrator annoying, but perhaps that's less important. <laughs> I don't know yeah. uh, if it's you know the author narrator rather than the first person narrator. Um, just, is... Sorry, I've just thought of another really good example. Um, the Great Gatsby's got a very interesting narrator. Mm, yeah. Survival classic. True, it does give us an opportunity for the sort of sidekick or the like, the, yes. the observer. But, the friend, it? like, you know, Dr. Watson. Yeah, yeah. Um, if this person does seem to maybe divide into those who are more like fly on the wall observer types and the very, um, over the top or unusual or, yeah. I'm trying to think if um, Confederacy of Dancers is first person. I think it might be. Um, have you read that? No, I haven't. Oh, it's, I thought I'd hate it, and it was so funny. It's so. Same like your cup of tea at all. Yeah, it was for book group, which is why I read it. But it was it's, it's very um, over the top. Ignatius J. Riley is this very um, literally larger than life um, character <laughs> who basically the, the novel follows him trying to hold down a job for a while, whilst at the same time finding everyone in the world ridiculous and awful and being himself fairly ridiculous and awful um and because he's so over the top it works very well it's very very um it's not at all lifelike and it's very funny but um yes i'm gonna let's say he is the novelist in the first person my point's undermined if it's not but um (laughs) i'm gonna say that you couldn't do that novel in the third person because his character needed you needed to hear his voice all the time for it to work in that way and then, and I now will now find out that it's not in the first person, and that doesn't make any sense. But let's hope it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you know, voice is so important, and I think the the novels that really stay with you that are in the first person have those really memorable, very unique, and very convincing voices that really bring that character to life for you. Like, for example, mm. like, like I said earlier, I capture the castle. Mm-hmm. The voice of Cassandra just rings throughout that whole book and you're really convinced and all the little phrases that she has and the way she has of looking at things is so her and it's completely consistent throughout and you just warm to everything that happens because you warm to her almost instantly and that's what makes it such a memorable and special book I think because you just feel fall in love with this this narrative voice and this, and you think of her as a real person um, mm-hmm. and if you don't have that connection to the narrative voice and I think that the opportunity's been wasted a bit, really. Yeah, it does seem, once an author has decided to go to first person, that um, they have to use the potential, otherwise the novel will be a bit of a letdown. Yeah. Um, hmm. What's your, what's your favourite novel, and is it first or third person? 
Well, very novel, Miss Hargraves, mm. um, of course, um, and that is in the first person. Ah. Um, although, oddly, not the most... So, I'm not Miss Hargraves herself, so it's not the most memorable character who's in the, speaking. It is... So, it's Norman, who's is the narrator, and it's... Um, I guess he's sort of a mix between an observer and a participant, in that he's not yeah, the over-the-top character, but nor is he just sort of a bystander. Um, but... Th- that novel does really, I think, have to be in the first person because if it was in the third person, they'd have to find some way to explain why this woman has suddenly turned up who they've invented out of nowhere. Whereas being in the first person, he can just feel like, I'm overwhelmed by this, but it's happening and I'm just going to get on with it. Yeah. If that makes sense. Um, how about you? Um, well, it's very difficult to just pick one favourite. Um, but I would say probably my favourite book is Emma, and it's that third person, but the free and direct style that jumps around and goes into mm. different people's heads. But um, yeah, and that's I think that's the type of narration that I prefer because I do really enjoy first person. It's not that I don't like it. It's just I really like being able because I'm quite a nosy person. I quite like being able to get into everybody's heads. <laughs> um, yeah, I. Before we started, and indeed now, I still still am not sure which one I choose because it is a, a tricky um, choice. But I think ultimately, I just I, because I love an, the way in which people authors write and the way they can use style. I think there's going to be more opportunities for that in a third person novel where they can yeah. use use the full capacity of their wit or yeah, the sort of beautiful writing which would might feel fake if it was done first person so yes i, I certainly don't feel strongly about it but i think i might also fall down on the side of third person well there we go that was easy there we go that, um yeah so two novels no two books rather in the first person yes um coming up next so um i'll do a quick intro to side of the rosie since i just read it <laughs> so it's the oh. first book i've read expressly for the podcast wow and, uh, um, we came up with these last time when Rachel and I were trying to think of a book to go with my family and other animals, um, and couldn't think of any that we both read, so I thought I'd read Side of the Rosie, having meant to read it for a long time. Um, and it's a lovely book about, um, Laurie Lee growing up in a tiny village community, um, and it's not there's no real like through plot other than him just experiencing it at the different seasons and getting older and essentially well that's it really so he um (laughs) i didn't know how to introduce it i got onto what i think about it soon but basically yes living with his mother and his um half sisters and his brothers um and experiencing everything the village has to offer (laughs) more on that and on <laughs> Give us a quick intro to my family and other animals. Well, my family and other animals is a story of a wonderfully eccentric family um, who, one day, they've kind of—I think the father's died—and they're a bit short of money, as people always are. And they're living in England, in a on being looked after by an uncle. And then one day, they just decide, well, why don't we just move to um, Greece? And everyone's like, okay, sure. Um, <laughs> Why not? And this is, I might add, in the 1930s, so it's quite an unusual thing to do at the time, uh, before the war. And they all just ship off to the... Uh, it's, it's Corfu, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. They ship off to Corfu, 
And, um, you know, this is a time really before tourism. So these English people turning up on a Greek island is very much met with bemusement by the locals. Um, and they find this sh- ramshackle pink, uh, strawberry pink villa and that's surrounded by beautiful, just beautiful scenery. And they move in and it's the story of their very hilarious interactions with the locals and with the net- natural environment, Gerald Durrell, people who don't know. Um, was a naturalist, so he's very interested in um, the animals and the nature around him and everything. And he's a small boy when they move, um, and he's got a sister who's very into her appearance and a couple of older brothers who are very artistic, um, and his mum is just kind of adventurous and crazy. And it's just brilliant. I particularly like the cab driver, whose name I can't remember, but I remember him being hilarious. He was great, and I can't remember his name either, but I do know he was played by Brian Blessed in one adaptation, which is extraordinary, (laughs) (laughs) which I haven't seen, but the idea of Brian Blessed playing a A Greek, um, Greek, just (laughs) astonishing. Um, So yes, I really love both these books, and I'm very pleased that this episode gave me the impetus I finally needed to read um, Cider with Rosie. I'm so pleased. Isn't it wonderful? And I'm trying to, I realise I can't remember which county it's set in, which is ridiculous. It's in Dorset. Dorset, okay. It's only round that area, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and they do have a day out to Western Supermare at one point, which, yeah. you know, I pity them for that. But <laughs> um, I, What I chiefly loved about Cider with Rosie is um, that's that as he wrote, he was the last generation to be in this sort of interior village type because obviously they didn't, hadn't advanced as far as we have now with, you know, travel and internet or whatever, but it was it was the last time that people just lived in a village altogether and never really went anywhere and that was their whole world. Mm. Um, and just seeing... I mean, I'm sure it had many frustrations and he certainly doesn't paint it as being entirely idyllic, but, it, but I just really felt like I was in that community... Um, where everyone knew each other, everyone knew each other's foibles as well as all their, you know, good qualities. Um, where many people just didn't seem, didn't really seem to work either. They just sort of just lived there. Yeah. Had, had, had just enough to get by, just enough to survive. Um, and yeah, part of that family, which again, without a father, um, that was actually really interesting. You start off just realizing they don't have a, there's no father there. And it's only later in the book he explains that, um, the father hung around for, I think it was three years, and in that time she'd had four children. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, speedy work. I think one and of them died. Went yeah. off and left her and with, left with his children from his former wife. Exactly. And yes. The ones with her, which I just thought was, you know, hilarious. Hilarious, uh, really sad, but also, I mean, so much in that book, it treads that line between sad and funny. Yeah. Um, just because think about that, it's really sad. She just waited her whole life for him to come back, and he didn't. And at the same time, it's just like this ridiculous situation. Um, but of course, everyone thinks their own upbringing is normal yeah. <laughs> because that's all that anyone knows. So he's, he's just like, this is what happened. This is the life I led. These are the times I nearly died in that family. <laughs> and I think it's amazing as well because so much of this sort of history that we have, these poor people living in back of beyond, you know, their stories never get told and you never really know much about what life was like. And actually there were people who did have women like this who were saddled with six, seven, eight children on their own and they worked very, very hard to both keep a house, keep children and also get money in. And these women are just kind of ignored and not really thought about. And it's amazing to think that there were thousands, hundreds of thousands of people in rural communities living like this. 
and it was literally hand to mouth and so much hard work literally that woman gets up at four o'clock in the morning and <laughs> stop and it's something that's really interesting to me because my nan grew up in a similar endorse it in a similar community and um she always i used to always talk about um she's dead now so she would have been in her very late 90s and um she used to say to i said oh nan it must have been so wonderful growing up in a village in the countryside <laughs> and she was like no it was awful it was horrible you know we lived in a two-bedroom house with six children there was never any money there was never any like that we could never have the fire on because it smoked into the living room so it was all yes. cold um there was never enough food there were never enough clothes we were lucky if we got to go to school once a week or whatever you know there were just this wasn't an idyllic environment but she you know she was very negative about the countryside but um, whenever I spoke to like, my great aunts and uncles, they had much fonder memories of it. And when you look at the photographs that they have, I mean, they don't have that many, but of them just being free to run around in the countryside and with horses and things. And there was a lot, I think, yes, there were a lot of hardships, but at the same time, there is that sense that everybody knew each other as well. Um, and I remember my, we took my nan back to the village um, that she grew up in a few, like about 20 years ago, and she could tell us exactly who had lived in every single house. Mm. And yeah. what kind of community do you have like that now? Yeah, and it's it's interesting um, that you brought it up when we were talking about the seasons, about how you thought it was, or you always made you think of these like long summer days, because yeah. there's so much in there about it being freezing cold in winter as well. It's just great. He, do, he does both the seasons, or both those seasons. Um, but it really came across just how cold uh, that sort of house could be, like yeah. the thick walls and the lack of direct sunlight the lack of obviously no central heating um and just the you know damp walls lying in damp sheets with, a, yeah. with the, one of his many illnesses he got um and in general i just like uh, to go back a bit i love the way he wrote about his mother it, it was really touching without being pitying he was no, never pitying her or never like i guess it was the way any of us might talk about people we, we know really well and love them it's like here's what they were like here's what they did i think they're great but you know that if it had been, if it had been a third person narrator, she would, I think, would have come across much more, maybe poignantly, maybe more sadly than he was able to say, saying this was mum, this is what she was like. Yeah, and she seemed like she was amazing. She was great. She also must have been a bit of a nightmare at times. <laughs> um, her timekeeping left something to decide. Who <laughs> can blame her when she's well, quite yes. that on a daily basis and just what I loved as well was just the, the little details like how long for example it would take to go and get your shopping um, yes. or the fact that these children had one outing a year organised by the church that they had to look forward to and that was it like that was you know what they looked forward to and got excited about and when you think these days if you said to a kid wow you're going to get to go to Western Supermare next week <laughs> And it's not only the one time they go on outing, it's the one time they leave the village, it seems yeah. like. That seems bizarre to me that no one just thought, oh, I'll just, I mean, I guess they didn't have time, maybe, if they had so yeah. much to do, but I think no one's just going to go, I'm going to go for a five-mile walk and get into the next village. It's just, they just didn't know anyone from other villages, um, it seemed. Oh, that bizarre school as well, yes. where, where, like, two classes. <laughs> and the poor teacher in trying to control all those children of uh, age groups. I mean, I don't know how they did it. And it is just the sheer backbreakingness of everyday life of just keeping children alive fed a house vaguely clean having some washing done and some food on would take you all day and no they didn't have time 
to go and visit a friend in a different place or whatever else. Like, there, there was just no time for that. And I think that idea of there not really being any leisure time is something that's quite shocking to read about as well. Mm-hmm. But again, he doesn't say, you know, oh, wasn't life terrible? Life seemed to be wonderful, but from a child's perspective, it was wonderful. But you see the adults through his eyes, and now as an adult myself, I can't help but think how awful it must have been. Yeah, I mean, I guess they didn't or anything different you didn't you didn't seem to be that much i mean of people like you know trying to get out or trying to change things or just accepting things and not even the being that miserable really good no. i guess it's more from our perspective that we think yeah. gosh that must have been hard and i think that there is um those old ladies who lived top and bottom of each other that, yes. that, that was a, another one which was at once so funny and but at the same time so sad if you thought about it <laughs> Uh, um, these two old ladies living basically sustained by their hatred of each other that seemed to be based on nothing. <laughs> um, but yeah, I do think, what, what was their background? What, where have they been the rest of the, these lives? Because obviously, to the small boy remembering it, or remembering it as a small boy, that they were just old ladies. They'd always been old. Yeah. <laughs> but, and then the squire, who did he ever talk to? Because <laughs> he just sort of kept himself to himself. Yeah. was obviously the only rich person in the neighbourhood. Maybe he was jaunting off to London all the time. I don't know. Get away um, from these uh, slack-jawed locals. Well, quite. Who, I mean, given that, you know, slack-jawed locals, as it were, with this rudimentary education, where did Laurie Lee learn to write so beautifully? Because isn't his writing wonderful in it? It's, oh, it's beautiful, and it's so atmospheric and descriptive. And I think, again, that's, you know, one of the marvels of the fact that, you know there is so much to the human spirit and to curiosity and things that even in a place where you, you're never shown that there could be another possibility, you still have that curiosity inside of yourself. And I think also he was lucky in that he was on this kind of point in time where things were starting to change. So what's quite interesting, I thought, about the book was that kind of sadness at the end from the old generation that so many of the younger people were moving away because they had to. Um, there wasn't anywhere for them to live, there were no jobs for them to get, and so the world starts to open up, and also that it's easier to get around, there's a bus service. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and that revolutionises people's lives, to have a bus. Um, and it's those sorts of things like that, that that start to show this world changing. But what's really interesting about Laurie Leo, which I thought was amazing, was that he did actually return to the village and he ended up living out most of the rest of his life there as a... Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, he returned. His house is there and you can go and see it. So, yeah, he returned. I don't know if to the exact village, but certainly very nearby. Um, to retire, He retired there and, and lived out his last days there because he had such fond memories of it. But I think that's very um, telling of the role that the countryside has now. And this is what he was saying towards the end of the book, is that the countryside becomes a, a place just for old people. And you don't have that sense of community that they had in that book with the children and the teenagers and then the young married people and then the older, then the middle-aged people and the old people. You just don't have that in the countryside. I think certainly now you have the bottom and top of that. It's just no yeah. one can afford to live there once they're in their early 20s. Yeah. Um, or, or indeed 20s, 30s perhaps, <laughs> until, until they're a young family, perhaps they can move back. Um it was just thinking when you said he might have lived in a nearby village. Having grown up in a village myself, the idea of living in a village near the one I grew up that wasn't precisely the one I grew up in just feels like treachery. Like you couldn't I live in. I mean, I, you think that he did move yeah. to the same village? I hope he did. I hope he did. <laughs> because I think 
obviously people have identities in different parts of a town or different parts of a city, but the identity you get in your village versus the other nearby villages is so strong and so like you just can't imagine your village being any of the other ones nearby i didn't know this yeah because i mean like in oxford i've lived in you know five different parts of oxford and it's always just to meet bits of oxford and i don't feel that strongly about whether it's east oxford or west oxford or whatever but yes eckington for example (laughs) in worcestershire where i grew up like we weren't enemies with people in burlingham and Deptford and bestford and but breeden but I could never live in those places because they're so close to Eckington. They're not Eckington. It just wouldn't work. Couldn't do it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I also think what he really brought across is that you're never going to know a place as well as the one in which you were a child, I think, because... No. Partly because time feels slower as a child and partly because you're looking at all these things, I don't know, taking everything in all the time. It's the first time. Each thing you see is the first example of that thing you've seen, I guess. I, I will never know a village as well as any I know Eckington just because that's where I learnt about everything, essentially. Yeah, <laughs> um, and it, he brings that across that sort of deep intimacy with a place. Yeah, that you don't get otherwise because you don't really adventure as an adult, um, yeah. and you don't have that time to explore in the way that children do. Like, I mean, I grew up in the suburbs, but um, I certainly know the bit of southeast London I grew up in, like at the back of my hand. And mm, I don't yeah. actually like going back there now because it's changed so much. It's become mm. very, you know, trendy and full of flats. And um, it's kind of like, oh, that used to be that, or that used to be that, or that used to be that. And it's it's all going now. And the amount of people that actually remember it, what it, it was more like, a, you know, a, a small town when I was growing up. But now it's very much just another blob of London. That's uh, the thing with Laurie Lee is that he sees, he documents the changes over the time he lives there quite beautifully but he has, there's no sort of sense of what it was like in the decades before he was there because obviously right. he doesn't know and he wasn't living through that and there must be all the adults there thinking gosh it's changed so much by the time he comes along but he, I don't know to him as I guess to most of us a place is is basically how it was when we moved there that's yeah. that's like that's its history starts there and that really comes across yeah I mean it's a wonderful evocation I think of childhood in general and of how we experience childhood and how we experience the places we grow up and how we experience our families and and how small a child's world is and um, and how beautiful it is for a child because I just think it's I just found it wonderful. It's so beautiful in its just description of what it is like to be a child and it was like a different world, like a, it's so safe and innocent and um, but at the same time, there is that darkness underneath the surface of the poverty and all the rest of it. But he felt that he was very protected from that. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. Let's um, move on. Um, well, I think it's clear that we both love that book. But, yeah. um, to talk about my family and other animals. What are your thoughts? Well, I think it's a very different beast because it's very overtly funny. It's a yes. very funny book. And all of the... Um, I was a bit disappointed, really, to read about it afterwards and find that the characters had been somewhat exaggerated. Um, but <laughs> he, um, his sister and his brothers are are very much sent up um, in the book, and his mother as well. Um, it's very much... A, I love a boys boys writing about their sisters and the horror <laughs> about them. Um, and it's a very... You know, and it's also the funny funniness of the culture clash between 
the very what they view to, what what um, Gerald Durrell views to be the very eccentric Greek people, um, and how they're viewed by the others as well, and all these random people that come and stay with them, his brother's friends, and oh gosh, yes, <laughs> sorry, um, bohemian friends who you know the type of person who's been to university for a, a month and now thinks that they know everything, um, and those sorts of of people that are very they come across as being stereotypes but we all know that they're true um, <laughs> and it's very very so you've got that kind of family circle and the friend circle and the the kind of social um world that they live in and and the poking fun at, at different people's personalities but then at the same time you also have this wonderful depiction of pre-war Corfu and a really unspoiled landscape. And I think it's really difficult for us to imagine what it would have been like because, I mean, I know I've been to lots of Greek islands and I just, it's, it's so tourist tour. Clang. <laughs> yeah. um, I get that. I've been to no Greek islands. So. <laughs> you should go. And you can still see in many places what it must have been like for them when they when they turned up. But so many of them have just been ruined by tourism. It's quite hard to kind of see how it must have been for them. But, I just think I was just so impressed when I was reading it by how um, adventurous this family had been and the mother just agreeing to taking her four kids to Greece, like with nothing. Um, mm -hmm. not speaking a word of the language, but being like, hey, why not? Let's just go for it. And that kind of adventurousness and sense of fun that the family have. And the mum is just like not phased by anything, which I find hilarious. Like Gerald Durrell just collects all these random scorpions and stuff and brings them into the house. Um, and then like puts them in people's shoes and stuff like that. And then people tread on the scorpion and his mum's just like, oh, don't bring scorpions in the house. And it's, you know, it's very, all just very relaxed and chilled out. And it feels really idyllic as well. That sense of that protected bubble of childhood that you get inside of his crazy. You really get in um, my family and other animals as well. Which is bizarre because I think actually the war was actually taking place during these years. I think maybe they moved there shortly before the war, but it was actually being waged as they were there i think it's just and there's just no sign of that at all in the book which i agree with you it is different because it is such a funny book um and where while laurie lee i think has a very close observation of the people around him um as you say gerald Durrell is quite keen to send people up and give these exaggerated portraits nowhere better than i think with laurie um laurie as in lawrence Durrell. took me quite a long time to realize that they were one and the same but um person um, my favourite moment, I think, being when he insists they move house so that his friends can come and stay. Just, it's just common sense. <laughs> somehow it happens. Yeah, we're going to have to move because my friends are staying for a couple of weeks. Yeah. <laughs> the mum's like, well, you know, I see your point. We're going to have to move. Yeah, it's like, no, you're right. And it can't possibly have happened quite like that. But <laughs> um, I just loved his character because it is more of a character, I suspect, than a, than yeah. a real reflection where he's just... Well, uh, so deeply set in his literary set and his set of you know academic friends that everything else is nothing to him in fact all of them are basically very single-minded in their pursuit yes. whether it's hunting or fashion or geckos or literature more or less the exclusion of anyone else um and anyone else's perspective is just a hindrance to them and yet because they love each other um and tolerate each other they all somehow cope with it and get along together yeah. and the mother doesn't go mad somehow <laughs> I, mean, I just think it's wonderful his turn of phrase is so funny the way he sent, sets these scenes up and just yeah I was just looking at my blog review um, when I wrote about it for shiny books and it's something about 
describes how pompous Laurie is in the end of the paragraph. It just says something like, and that pompous pomposity is how he came to set the villa on fire. <laughs> sure, of course it is. <laughs> what happens next? Tell me, tell me more. Um, I must confess, the sections of the book that interested me less were those that dealt with the other animals bit, um, where he describes, you know, the various reptiles and whatnot. Um, there's one bit where he wakes up and sees, I think it's a gecko on the ceiling, and his first thought is to analyse it carefully, whereas my first thought would probably be to go to a different bedroom. Yes. Scream <laughs> <laughs> <rub>. Yes. <laughs> But um, yes, that taxi driver as well, the one we mentioned earlier, whose name we can't remember. Yes. So wonderful, the way he just takes them in hand as soon as they arrive and becomes this lifelong family friend, um, based on very little at all, just his good nature and their willingness to, to receive it. Yeah, and he loves the opportunity to practice his English, and it's, yes. um, you know, it's just wonderful. It's a really light-hearted book, and I think, not that Cider with Rosie isn't light-hearted, but I think Cider with Rosie is more... Um, Emotive, I would say, than mm, definitely, yeah. My family and other animals. My family and other animals, I would say, is definitely a very comic novel. Um, and I think one we can all relate to when thinking about our various crazy family members who we love <laughs> but also find hilarious. Yeah, I think it's definitely, um, yeah, we can relate in a, to them in a, in a way, but no one has relatives quite like these no. people. <laughs> Um, it definitely feels like a book that's written by an adult remembering being a child and then distorting it, whereas Laurie Lee somehow takes you into the eyes of the child. Yes. Um, and without any sort of distancing technique, really, even though he is remembering it as well. Yeah. Um, I guess humour is the distancing technique that, that Gerald Orr uses because we never really get to an emotional centre in the, in the, um, in the memoir. No, which is trying to, I don't think he's Exactly, yeah. Have you read the sequels to, in fact, to either of these books? Um, no, I've got the sequels for Cider with Rosie, but I don't know what, I didn't want to read the next one because I, I felt, thought that it might make me sad, so I just didn't, but I will at some point. And I've never read the sequels to Gerald Darwin's books. No, I mean, unsurprisingly, I've not read the sequels to Laurie Lee having only read the first one recently, but, um, <laughs> I do have them um, in a box that I bought together, and I've got the sequel. I look hunted out the sequel to Gerald Darrell's, but also have not read those. Awesome. Um, I meant to say when we were talking about Sally of Rosie, what a bizarre title I thought it was, um, given that the, there is a scene where he takes cider with Rosie, but it's not a particularly significant scene in the book. I thought. No, <laughs> I suppose it's quite an, an atmospheric title, isn't it? I wonder whether somebody else suggested that as a title. Maybe, yeah. Whereas My Family and Other Animals is a wonderful title. Yeah. It's so clever. I mean, yeah, not that clever, I guess. But it's, but it's, so, <laughs> it's, it's, it's so evocative of his interests and how he's going to treat the people in the book. Yes. Very witty. I think it's a very witty title. Yes. <laughs> um, but yes, I very much want to read... Well, I'm sure in both cases the sequels probably don't live up to the original. And the second already is about him going to Spanish Civil War, isn't it? Yeah, well, I think that's why I didn't want to read it, because I thought, oh, I can just imagine this is going to be not nice. It's probably not going to be a knockabout comedy, is it? No. <laughs> Having said that, who knows, maybe it will be. But, <laughs> but I, yeah, so his sort of very observational eye might be rather hard to cope with in, in wartime. But Yes, well, one day I'll read it and I'll let you know. Maybe we should do that one versus Birds, Beasts and Other Relatives, or whatever, I think, is that the second one? Birds, Beasts yeah. and something. Um <laughs> we'll work our way through their their different series, <laughs> comparing each to each. Um, 
We've been talking for a very, very long time, so we may have to give slightly short shrift to my family other animals and yeah. come to a conclusion. Yeah. Um, do you know what you're going to choose? Yeah, I think cider with rosy I will always love more because it's so beautiful, and I feel like it's a connection with my with my grandma as well. So I, that's why I like that one so much. Um, and I'm going to pick my family and other animals, um, which is a tough decision because I do love both of them, but I think there is it's so hard to come across books that are that funny um they're, they're quite rare um and yeah it just i i loved it so much for its humor and side of the rosie i really loved but i i felt that i don't know it got towards the end it got so episodic that i don't know i would have i don't know something a bit tighter perhaps yeah. if that makes sense yes. um but definitely love them both wow the game decision. Yeah. <laughs> but thank you very much, Rachel, for for getting me to read Cyber Breezy. And if anyone listening hasn't read either of those books, I'm, I can't imagine anyone not loving them both. No, so do go and get them. Yeah. Um, very easy to find secondhand, I'm sure. Unlike some of the books we choose. Um, <laughs> even easier to find secondhand are the books that we're going to do next time or other works we're going to do next time because we decided to get rather highbrow guys tell them what we're doing rachel (laughs) well we're going to do a bit of shakespeare next time yeah we are um we're going to do tragedies versus comedies that's right we're going to cover all of those in the podcast (laughs) (laughs) every single Oh gosh, I got some reading to do for next time. <laughs> well, the thing is, my reputation's on the line here. At least you're not an English teacher. Oh, that's a very good point. You must teach Shakespeare, yeah. <laughs> yes, I do. I am at the moment. <laughs> I'm actually teaching a comedy and a tragedy at the moment, so there we are. Okay. I'm um, we've, we've, we've already dismissed the histories out of hand. No one's <laughs> favourite of the histories, are they? Let's face it. No one cares about them. <laughs> I've only read one say. of them. Actually, no, I don't think I've read any histories. <laughs> there you go. So, no. Nothing to say about them. No. So that's something to look forward to, you guys. But um, for today, thanks very much for listening, and we'll speak to you next time. Thank you. Bye. Bye.